I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It is Monday, ladies and gentlemen, and football is coming home. I'm here with Chris Hennage to give our post-match reaction. Chris, England are going to win the World Cup. It's happening. They're one step closer than they were yesterday. What did you make of the game, Chris? Do you think England played well? Did they deserve the win? There's so much to dig into here. Ultimately, I would say yes, based on their desire to attack and actually try and win the game. I think I think they earned that that great opportunity that was the Harry Kane header in the last minute. Obviously, like we say, last minute winner for Harry Kane, perhaps on the balance of playing deserved it because they created so many chances, Chris. The sense was in those opening exchanges, in those, in those opening passages of play, England created so many chances, they'd almost thrown it away by not being more clinical, by not putting them away in that sort of opening 15, 20 minutes when Jesse Lingard had two free chances that perhaps he should have put away. Yeah, I thought that opening 15-20 minutes was possibly England at their peak and what they can do to a team in terms of finding space in behind. You had um, Kyle Walker playing some beautiful passes inside the fullback. Jesse Lingard and Deli Ali sort of interchanging, coming to the ball and then also pulling off into the channels. It was it was a real showcase of England's movement and their ability to to link together as an attacking unit. And I think... There were so many good chances put forth in that that, in a, in a bizarre way, with each missed chance, I almost felt the pressure ramp up a little bit, even though they were ahead. Just because, mm. I think Frank Lampard talked about it as well that, you know, you're almost waiting for something to go wrong at that point with each chance that that gets missed, and and I think that for me is is almost the duality of of the first half was England's brilliant in, in an attacking third to begin with and how they played with no pressure and, and just enjoyed the occasion to then a very stark contrast when they conceded and, and just how nervous and sort of edgy they looked in the sort of 10-15 minutes afterwards. Mm, I mean you talk about being punished and punished English were, punished England were on the sort of 35 minute mark Carl Walker penalised for an apparent elbow uh, on Ben Youssef, I mean was that a soft penalty for you? I've really gone back and forth on this one, if I'm if I'm honest, because I think it's it's very naive to swing an elbow like Kyle Walker did, um, and at the same time, I can't help but feel the Tunisian striker did everything in he, in his power to um, accentuate the contact and and get something for it. And I thought Rio Ferdinand made a really good point that 
a, a centre back or someone who is naturally a centre back does not get in the position, the body position that Kyle Walker is in, which is facing your goal. Ideally, you, you want to be facing the ball um, because I think it, it just gives you a better ability to attack it than than if you can't really see what's behind you or what's around you. Um, and I think for me, yes, with the important caveat that. I think consistency was lacking from the referee, if not quality of judgment. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think if you were to be clear-headed about it, I think it probably was a penalty. I think it was pretty naive and stupid of Kyle Walker, whether it was an elbow or not. Uh, I can't blame the referee for giving that penalty. But as you mentioned there, the consistency was lacking. There was at least one uh, apparent clear-cut penalty on Harry Kane, perhaps two. Perhaps referee Wilmar Roldan should have called in the video assistant referee. That they, they, they seemed to fail to spot what appeared to be Harry Kane getting wrestled to the ground in the penalty area. Yeah, the first the first half, um, there was an instance of it. There was a decent shout in the second half as well. It, it, there was a lot of small niggly fouls. I think that became a bit of a theme for Tunisia was that they tried to be quite tactical in their their fouling because. They wanted to stop uh, England's rhythm. They wanted to stop them advancing, and yeah, th- I think you know it's it's not necessarily even just a decision about VAR. It's a situation where he wasn't actually watching the fracar in the middle. He was I'm not even sure what he was watching, if I'm really honest. But that's a, that's a concern, definitely. That that England were we're not on the right side of fortune because I think that's that's what's ultimately frustrating and, and it highlights almost the fine margins of the game in general that we're now a lot more buoyant and a lot more optimistic talking about this game. But had it finished 1-1, I think there'd have been a decent shout to, to focus more on those penalty decisions that, that didn't go their way. In the end, though, of course, Harry Kane did save England. Um, that first goal on the 11-minute mark, uh, the, the winner itself in injury time, two from set plays. I mean, he didn't necessarily get involved in the game a huge amount he didn't feel incredibly influential in terms of his his, his, uh, play on the ball but when it mattered Chris he put away the chances when they came he did and I think that that for me is is almost what makes him so brilliant is that he might not be hugely involved in build-up all game he might not do a, a myriad of great things with the ball at his feet with the back to goal and all that stuff but I guarantee if you put that ball near him in a penalty box, chances are it's going in the goal. And and for me, I think um, we look back to the previous tournament and him taking the corners to now being in the box and scoring the the, the goals that give us a victory. It's, it's a stark change. But I think also with that second goal in particular, what really I quite enjoyed watching was his movement and his anticipation of what was going to happen. Um, maybe that's something that's been worked on in the, the training sessions or what, but the way that he peeled off his defender and just anticipated that, actually, I think the ball's probably going to come here. That, for me, was, was what I found most impressive watching it. We do have to single out the performance of another Spurs player as well. I've got no hesitation in doing that. Kieran Trippier, one of the standout, performance, uh, one of the standout performers for England on the night. How impressed were you with the, uh, with the Spurs right back? Really impressed. I thought he, he did exactly what he needed to do on both sides of the ball. Um, one of the things I've liked about him this season is his ability to get beyond the fullback, the opposition fullback, excuse me, and then potentially deliver something and time those runs as well as he does. And he only really did it once 
during to, during the game against Tunisia. But I thought it was a possible sign of things to come. And, and I think actually the the wing backs in general, it's something that Gareth Southgate's possibly going to have to to switch up and address. And I'm hoping he'll change it for for Panama and put Danny Rose mm. out there because I think if there's one critique of the fullbacks or the the wing backs or what have you. And it's not necessarily directed or at all directed at, at Kieran Trippier. It's that there was a real lack of balance because Ashley Young is very much right footed. He doesn't want to go down the outside mm. and he kept wanting to come back in. And it just meant that if if we were going to try and use the full back or the, the wing back, excuse me, to keep getting that wrong, if we were going to use the wing back as an attacking piece in the final third, it was going to have to go right because I, every time, as I say, Young got there, he wanted to cut in. Of the few times he did, there was a back heel from Sterling and a cross in on his left. It was a really tame cross because it's not his strong foot. Yeah, I think Ashley Young is, when I've watched Manchester United play this season, he is a frustrating player because of that incredible uh, one-footedness that he has. Um, he can be quite a, a difficult player to watch. And for England, it was no different, as you point out. I mean, we'll come on to what perhaps Southgate could change up in the next game or we'd like to see him do in that second game against Panama coming up on Sunday. But in terms of performances, I mean, we mentioned Ashley Young there, uh, frustrating in certain ways. We do have to point out Jordan Henderson, who had a great game as well in midfield, in that holding midfield position, picked over Eric Dyer. Harry Maguire as well, I think, grew into the game. He was obviously favoured over Gary Cahill in defence. For you, one player who might have the similar vibes to, to Ashley Young in terms of frustration is Raheem Sterling. Now, he started the game relatively well. Of course, he contributed to the England attack in terms of that pace, which troubled Tunisia. There was that glaring opportunity he seemed to miss in the opening stages when he couldn't quite get his feet sorted out, couldn't direct his shot to goal when Lingard flashed it across the face of the goal. Uh, for you, how would you rate Sterling's performance? Because, of course, he was brought off towards the end of the game after 68 minutes, Marcus Rashford coming on. For you, how would you evaluate the performance? Because for many England fans, it wasn't overly impressive. It wasn't, and I think this is one of those instances where there's been so much said about him before that you have to be um, fair in both quarters, and I think in this instance he was disappointing. He wasn't as sharp as uh, I would have expected from him. I don't think he contributed as much as I would have liked just in general build-up play, let alone finishing touches. There was obviously the um, the chance that he had that I think was given offside where Lingard squared it across. In, in general, it was just a poor outing from Sterling. And I, and I think moving into that Panama game, as if we talk about Danny Rose coming in to improve the left side, it's, it's almost impossible, I think, to look past, um, especially Ruben Loftus-Cheek coming in, but also Marcus Rashford being given a start and allowed to play off Harry Kane in that three. I really thought Ruben Loftus-Cheek had a, an impressive cameo. He wasn't given a huge amount of time, obviously, but I think you saw almost instantly what he can do, what... Really, I don't think any other England player can do, which is turn with the ball really quickly and drive at a defence and drive into space. And he was unfortunate that one of his runs ended up with it just crossing the, the end line there. But I think apart from that, there was a great chance he created for, for Marcus Rashford that he should have really mm. looked to take the shot instead of dummy. And I'm not fully sure why he dummied it at all. I can only assume he heard a call from, from Lingard. He looked mighty frustrated afterwards. The, the positive, I guess, for England is that they've got those options off the bench. To bring on Marcus Rashford with 20-odd minutes to go is a real option for Gareth Southgate to inject that pace, to inject that dynamism. Ruben Loftus-Cheek as well, driving from midfield. As you say, it was impressive coming on. And at least England have those alternatives that they can bring on to change the game. 
having said that, going into this Panama game, how would you like to see Gareth Southgate set up? And what sort of tweaks would you like to see him make? I mean, you talk about Danny Rosa on the left. I wholeheartedly agree. I'd like to see him play a back four instead of a back five, essentially against Panama. I don't think you necessarily need that five. I'd like to see a few tweaks in there from Gareth Southgate. I think potentially Kane alongside Rashford up front to start instead of Sterling, given that, well, the statistic that's doing the round is Sterling has failed to score in his past 21 England appearances. Perhaps Marcus Rashford in a game against Panama. He deserves that opportunity to prove that he can take advantage of an opposition like that. What other sort of changes, what other sort of tweaks would you like to see Gareth Southgate potentially make ahead of that second game for England? Well, that's that's an interesting question to ask because I, you know I don't think the system is going to change. I, I was personally I, I tweeted out originally that I thought it might be nice to try that back four just to see what it looks like, but some uh, some forthright tweet is reminding me that uh, Gareth Southgate is not looking to change his system. In which case, hmm. I'd be inclined to think that uh, changes really in personnel would be, you know, maybe Henderson for Dyer to see how that looks. Um, and then, you know, possibly bring Cahill in for a bit more experience and, and sub out Walker and, and and just essentially play with the individuals rather than the system itself. I think that the, the interesting thing with Panama is they'll have similarities in the way they set up to Tunisia. I don't think they'll rush out. I watched them against Belgium. I've watched them obviously a lot in qualifying as well. And they're not a team that likes to come out. They're a team, especially against... Uh, much more favoured opposition who will sit deep and will only press and engage aggressively once you reach their half. So I think it will be an interesting test in in that sense for England because I think that's where Ruben Loftus-Cheek could really stamp his authority on things because he does have that ability to <clears throat> to drive past players over five yards. Um, and I think you know we we look at someone like Jamie Vardy. Perhaps if we're looking to try and spring, spring quick counterattacks, he could be someone to exploit space in the channels um, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I think I think ultimately the key here is really to change that that left wing back, get Danny Rose in just to see how that works in terms of giving us more balance and option to pick which side we attack down. But then also just swap out some of the forward line just to see how they mesh together because it may be a situation where Jamie Vardy works better with Sterling or what have you. And I think that's where, where Gareth can, I don't want to say have some fun because I have the utmost respect for Panama and I think they'll provide a tough test, but maybe have just a little bit of experimentation to see what he can, can learn. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. From it. Mm, I think it's a very good point. I mean, as you say, there's no, there's no need to, to underestimate Panama. They are ranked 55th in the world rankings. At the same time, they need to be taken seriously. Um, but there is potentially that opportunity, that license to, if not experiment with the system, then experiment with the elements of it, be it changing, as you say, Vardy up front, Rashid up front. I think it, it would be smart of Southgate, if not to change to a back four and look to exploit Panama to keep with the same system and sort of tweak those elements to see if there, there's a there's a chemistry that works even more effectively than it did in this game. Because I think in those opening exchanges, you saw how dangerous it can be, albeit England didn't take the chances they created. Um, after this game, I mean, it's, it's impossible not to feel optimistic, Chris. Um, a 2-1 win, I think a deserved 2-1 win on the balance of play. England getting the first three points from the opening fixture. How are you feeling about the group overall? Because, of course, we saw Belgium debut in the World Cup, a convincing 3-0 win over Panama. Belgium are the third-ranked team in the world right now. But still, it was an impressive performance from them. Are you feeling that, you know, Belgium are going to be finishing first in this group, England are going to be playing second fiddle? Or is that little bit of optimism creeping in? You know, maybe England, maybe England can finish first now after that result. I mean, possibly. I don't think it's you know it's not um, within the realm of possibility. I think what you can say is that you know there there was an element of this game up until that second goal that felt almost formulaic, felt a bit expected. You know, we've been here before. Um, an element of deja vu, if you will. And I think, you know, maybe that's the takeaway from this game is that actually maybe things are a bit different now. Maybe they're changing a little bit because they stayed true to um, their style. They stayed true to their formation and essentially what they had been doing for most of the game. And that's ultimately what paid off was a second set piece. Now, I think we can all agree it would be nice to see some goals from open play. But I think at the same time with these tournaments, yes, we should be very confident now of qualifying. Because I think three points against Panama and it's pretty much done and dusted for, for my eyes. Whether we finish first or second is another debate for another time. I think what we can say is though is that in a tournament like this, we talk so often about how, sh- how short it is, how condensed it is. It's only seven games if you go all the way and all this kind of stuff. Actually, it's a month and you need to almost grow into it. So there's part of me, maybe it's supreme optimism, that thinks, you know what? I'm not terribly concerned that we're not hitting fifth gear for 60 minutes in the first game because actually having a little bit of a bump now when realistically it's at its least impactful. If we had lost tonight, if we had drawn tonight, we could still say, okay, we've got two games to fix it. Yeah. To to have that bump out of the way and then also not pay the price for it, I think that's, that's probably good for these players. They can go away and say, you know, we know what it's like to be nervous, to feel... And we know that we powered through, so we can take a lot of the intangible mental benefits of that that, that we don't always necessarily focus on with these games. And there's a certain lift, there's a certain optimism that comes in there with scoring in the last minute as well. The England players will be taken back into the next game against Panama. I'm very excited tomorrow to uh, to see the debut of Elliot Hackney, the loan signing for the front three on the podcast. He'll be speaking with us tomorrow about his reaction in the stadium to this game, his thoughts on England's campaign and the games that are coming up. Uh, before we leave, though, today, Chris, this is the first podcast we've done since the, the World Cup has kicked off. So many storylines, so many talking points from the last few days. We saw Russia thrash Saudi Arabia 
on the opening day, a surprise 5-0 hammering there. We saw Portugal drawing 3-0 with Spain, the game of the tournament so far, one of the games of the World Cup history, I think it's fair to say. We also saw France narrowly beating Australia, Germany losing to Mexico. So many different threads, so many different narratives to discuss. Which for you has been kind of the biggest talking point or the biggest sort of moment that's made you sit up and take notice so far in this uh, in this feast of football that is the World Cup? I think originally I'd have said Spain Portugal just because of how exciting it was, but for me it has to be the defending champions here, Germany, because it's it's one thing that they lost to Mexico, who I thought Juan Carlos Osorio put out a really fantastically well thought out and and drilled plan. And I think, in fact, he'd sat and thought about it for six months. I was reading yesterday, which is crazy to me, but it says a lot about the man, if nothing else. But it was what came out afterwards, because the German team, a lot of, I think, our our sort of English perspective was, imagine if they'd had Sane, you know, to throw in the last 20. I was even guilty of it to say, you know, wouldn't it be handy if Sane was on in this last 20 minutes? And, and I think the, the boy Julian Brandt came on and showed kind of what they were missing in the attacking sphere so much as they didn't have someone who was willing to run and, and engage Mexican defenders. But the bigger issue with Mexico was how disjointed the team was as a whole. And the fact that um, Hummels came out afterwards and said as much, you know, and, and sort of almost gave some, I'm going to let his words do the talking. He basically said, it's, it's pretty simple. We played like we did against Saudi Arabia, but against a better opponent. We talked about a few things, such as not losing possession and protection, which unfortunately we did not put into action today. If seven or eight players play offensively, then it's clear that the offensive force is greater than the defensive stability. That's what I often say internally. Now, that last little bit there is what is concerning to me, is that he's clearly mentioning this either to his teammates or to Joachim Lowe or somebody, and it's going unheard of. Well, that's the thing. I thought that was fascinating for him to come out and and make that, that admission. I mean, what does that signify to you? Does that signify a sort of a tactical naivety on, on Lowe's part, on Germany's part? Is it an arrogance? I mean, what do you read into that on the part of the German coaching staff? I'm, I'm loath to say arrogance because I don't necessarily know their methodology behind it. Um, there's part of me that thinks, for, for as much as we've talked about Germany reinventing itself post-millennium and Das Reboot, the fantastic book that, Rafa Honigstein put out. There's just part of me that wonders if if Germany are so sort of adamant that this four two three one is exactly what they need, and that you know if, if this delivered success, you know why does it necessarily need to change? Because you know they've still got that sort of. You can almost see that even though some of the names have changed, the roles have largely stayed the same. And I think what can what concerns me is that whether it's Draxler, Ozil, Muller they're not going to be huge contributors on a defensive end to me. They're not also going to be able to recover quickly either. I'd be far more inclined to make that a three-man midfield. Um, whoever you put in there, I think, is is entirely up to you. But I would make that a three-man midfield and be tempted to move Ozil out wide. The problem is, is that you then potentially have to drop one of Muller, Ozil or Draxler, or in this case, Muller or Draxler, to facilitate Ozil moving out wide. And I, I just think in general that the formation and the style, I'm not a huge fan of, of Sami Khedira as this, I don't even know what it is really. They, they need someone who is a defensive midfielder that can cover the space that either Kimmich or Jonas Hector, or in this case it was uh, Plattenhardt who, who played at left back, can essentially just fill that space, just slide across and fill in. And they didn't have that time and time again. And so 
the notion of keeping Kadira in the team and then, you know, allowing Cruz, who I thought was very well man-marked by Carlos Vela. And that was a key part of the tactic as well, is essentially sitting Vela on Cruz. And then the second Mexico got the ball, he had acres of space to run into and, and drive into. And that was my my concern was, I think, yeah, naivety is probably a, a decent word to, to surmise it, just because Germany seemed so... Um, surprised by Mexico's intent to use the counter-attack and use very pacey forwards like Irving Lozano and Vea on the counter-attack. And then they just didn't respond to it either. They did. They just, they kept, you know, that definition of insanity thing that you hear sometimes. They, they kept doing the same and expecting a different outcome. And, and I think that was perhaps their biggest crime. Mm, it's a good point. I wonder if they do have the personnel uh, to, to play the system that the low wants to implement, whether it is square pegs in round holes almost you know Sammy Kadira isn't suited to to the responsibilities that he needs to cover attention that midfield as you mentioned to be interested to see if, if Lowe does tinker with that, that going into the next game that's the only concern though as well sorry to, to interject there is that potentially you're going to then have to change the system stroke formation and do it during a tournament because mm. as I sit here now and look at the squad you know, maybe it's a a back three, and and you know, uh, Rudiger comes in or Sebastian Rudy comes in, um, but then again, yes, that means that Kimmich and Platner have less defensive responsibility. But then it changes how you're going to play moving forward because then, well, do you shift Muller inside? It's it. There are so many sort of uh, considerations for if you do X, then this impacts Y. And I would hate to be having to try and experiment like that during a tournament when I'm not too sure if what I'm going to do is actually a wise move. It is interesting, though. One of the, the, the teams we spoke about, that Russia, of course, the host, the lowest-ranked team in the competition, they're arguably the only team who have had a, a hugely convincing result so far, aside from Belgium today in their 3-0 win over Panama. I mean, we're speaking about Germany here, losing to Mexico. Spain, one of the favourites going into the tournament, given the upheaval just 24 hours, 40 hours before the tournament, drawing for free all with Portugal, uh, having held the lead. Uh, we've got France, who are perhaps a little bit unconvincing against Australia. Argentina, Messi missing the penalty and drawing to Iceland, a team they really should be in a, in, a, in a tough group. Of course, Brazil as well, drawing with Switzerland. I mean, what have you sort of made of the struggles of some of these favourites to, to, to come out of the blocks quickly? Is this just adjusting to the pressure, adjusting to the World Cup? Or is this, there a sense that you know some of these teams may have to change systems, may have to, to rethink what they're doing? It's an interesting one, that, because I read a piece by Miguel Delaney about the fact that this World Cup, there's a sort of a drop in the quality of coaching. Um, and that made me think, well, maybe that's part of it. But then also, I can't help but think that maybe the, the lesser nations have become more defensively sound, and a lot of them are focusing on defend first, counter-attack second once we get the ball. Um, and you see almost a return to some ideals. I look at Valon Barami basically man-marking Neymar last night and having a very good game. I, I mean, he, he committed some what I would constitute tactical fouls again, but for the most part, he kept him shadowed, he kept him quiet. Um, and I think that's the thing is that when you look at this tournament as, as a whole, and I, I was trying to think back to kind of what I was thinking in the early stages of 2014 and 2010, there's no real team that's burst out the blocks and you thought, wow, they were sensational. Yes, Belgium dispatched Panama with, with I would say, regular ease, probably after half-time once that, that goal from uh, Dries Mertens goes in. 
but prior to that, they had a little bit of a um, a tough first half, and and you know Panama did create a chance or two that. If those, you know, if, if they don't have that breakthrough with Mertens and and that chance for Mario goes in, it's a totally different game. And I appreciate that's evaluating the ifs and buts to some some of our listeners. I just think that right now we're looking for someone to stamp a mark on things, and I don't know if we've had that. And to a certain extent, that's almost quite exciting because it means it's a lot less predictable than if than maybe it felt like a couple of weeks ago. I'm with you. It's exciting. It's an exciting World Cup so far. Uh, what stage of World Cup fever are you at right now? Because uh, I'm, I'm I'm riddled with it, if it's fair to say. Riddled with it. Wow. There's, there's a, <laughs> riddled with World Cup fever. There's a there's a phrase I never thought. There's I'd an image. Say. There's um, an image. Um, <laughs> it is the most like you know South Korea Sweden today. I don't care really about the the result between South Korea Sweden. I'm watching the whole game. I'm into it. I've got the World Cup fever, you know. Yeah, and I think you know to to deviate for a second. That to me is one of the the sweeter things about this because um, I watch I watched the England game tonight with with my dad who's um, just turned seventy and he only sees football through the prism of sort of match of the day and, and Premier League he doesn't really see anything else so there's a lot of players he's never seen before never heard of before and even I'm watching Tunisia tonight thinking I've never heard of a good number of these players if I'm very frank. And there's that element of discovery that felt a lot more prevalent when I was younger in terms of you would see the Baggios, the Totties, the Del Pieros, Raul, players that weren't readily available are now much more available. And yet there's still an element of, you know, I haven't seen a lot of certain players play and there's a fun element of discovery with that. Finally then, before we sign off for tonight, uh, guys, thanks so much for listening. Uh, As I say, you can hear us tomorrow. We'll be talking some of the big games then. Russia, Egypt is coming up. Colombia making their debut in this tournament against Japan. And Elliot Hackney, our loan signing for the tournament in Russia, will be joining us to talk England, his experience out there in Russia, and his thoughts on the upcoming games. Um, Until tomorrow, though, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for your thoughts on the England game. Where can the listeners find you? At K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E. Lovely stuff. Guys, you can find me on Twitter confessing my love for Harry Kane at Adam Boltwood. You can find us all at the front three. Make sure you're following. Make sure you also submit a review on iTunes. Click the link in the description of this podcast. Rate the front three. We've got a couple of good reviews coming in this week. Uh, A bit of competition for the coveted whole of the week award, which we'll be announcing on Thursday. Uh, So if you want to be in contention, get those reviews in. We'll see you tomorrow for more World Cup debate. Until then, enjoy the football. Three, that's a magic number. Three. It is, it's the magic number. Three. Somewhere in this hip-hop soul community was born three, they still and that's a magic number. 
A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.